1: Hi, warm Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us as we begin a new week together. Lots to get to today, including U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in Beijing looking for a trade relationship reset. China halves a key stock trading tax but hopes for sweeping new stimulus still unmet. And Fed Chair Jay Powell warns his inflation fight is far from finished yet. A further rate hike therefore remains, I think, a fair bet. Meanwhile, on global markets, no need for the balls to fret. US futures pointing to a positive start to the week. Europe mostly higher too with UK investors on holiday. It's a long bank holiday weekend there. Wall Street closing out last week's trading in the green. That despite the Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell's tough talk on rates during his keynote speech Friday at the Fed's Jackson Hole Symposium, Powell not ready to pivot on policy given the still murky inflation outlook, but his promise of continued data dependency means I think little visibility over where rates are headed, and that perhaps might limit some stock buying exuberance. We shall see. In Asia, the major indexes closing sharply higher, as you can see there too. Beijing's move to boost investor confidence by making it cheaper to trade stocks, helping boost sentiment there. Although Chinese markets finished the session substantially off their highs. That's worth noting. All this After shares of failed property developer Evergrande resumed trade for the first time in 17 months. And take a look at that. Shares promptly tumbling almost 80%. It's not really a great surprise given all the bad news in the property sector and, of course, its own bankruptcy filing earlier this month. We'll discuss China's multi-pronged economic dilemma and how best to battle the crisis of confidence facing both Chinese consumers but also, more importantly, the private sector and businesses later in the show with Eswar Prasad of the Brookings Institution. For now, let's bring you the latest from Beijing as the U.S. Commerce Secretary wraps up her first day of talks with Chinese officials. Raimondo saying stable relations between Washington and Beijing are, quote, profoundly important, but also admitting the difficult path ahead, giving the growing national security friction between the two nations. Raimondo focusing on the positives, however, on Monday showing off U.S.-made personal care beauty products sold in China, that she says represent the promise of trade between the two nations. Stephen Chang joins us now from Beijing. Stephen, the US Commerce Secretary keen to point out that the vast majority of trade between the United States and China doesn't touch on these sensitive technologies and uh, future technologies in particular too. The question is, can they grow the rest of it despite the tension over those critical smaller elements?
2: Yeah, that's right, Julia. You know, as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Even though the overall, uh, you know, trajectory of this relationship being increasingly contentious out of geopolitical and ideological reasons. Few people expect that to change anytime soon. Romano, of course, is going to focus on a, f- a positive and on the economic sphere because the fact that she is actually here, being the fourth cabinet level U.S. official to visit China in just about two months, is a testament to that resolve uh, to-, to put a floor on this free fall in this relationship. Now, you know, she is uh, expected to deliver some tangible results out of this trip by uh, perhaps having the Chinese promise more access to certain U.S. sectors or firms or even uh, perhaps buying more. Boeing jets. You know, she's going to hold a press conference on Wednesday evening at Shanghai's Pudong International Airport, where Boeing has a large facility. And also there was talk about her visiting the Shanghai Disneyland, obviously, to highlight the success from such bilateral cooperation. But as you pointed out, the challenge for her is her agency, the Commerce Department, has been the one imposing a growing number of export controls, targeting China in semiconductors, in advanced computing. And the the Biden administration, of course, has also proposed to restrict American investments in these fields. All of that greatly angering Beijing, with the uh, leader Xi Jinping himself increasingly talking about self-reliance in key technologies to free China from the American chokehold because, as he puts it, the U.S. is out to contain China's rise. So Gina Raimondo, of course, is going to tell her Chinese counterpart these export controls, very narrowly focused, accounting for 1% of America's export. So there's still a lot of uh, room for growth. But the Chinese officials may not be convinced that they don't see any difference between so-called de-risking, as Washington has been put it, and the decoupling. But what's been helping her mission, Julia, of course, is the Chinese economy facing its strongest headwinds in decades. So faced with a lot of domestic pressure, the Chinese leadership may be uh, willing to uh, give uh, their officials more wiggle room to work with Romando to uh, stabilize this economic relationship. Julia?
1: Yeah, being able to export more for the Chinese economy would certainly help with that, um, with the concerns over weakening Chinese growth in particular. And actually, I mentioned it in the introduction to the show, Evergrande the giant property developer in China just underscoring, I think, with what we saw over the weekend and their results, a huge challenge for China in the property sector, which is what a quarter of of the economy. Talk me through what we heard from Evergrande. And I said, no surprise really to see the share price fall so significantly as a result.
2: Yeah, as you mentioned, it's really depressing, but perhaps not shocking to see its share prices fall more than seventy percent despite reporting significantly narrowing of its net losses for the first half. But you know, let's not forget, it's still the world's most indebted real estate developer. It's still going through a government-guided restructuring. Not to mention, as you put it, the whole industry, the whole sector is uh, going is imploding, as many experts uh, have put it. With other massive players like Country Garden uh, very much in trouble as well. But the problem for this economy, of course, is not just one sector, but multiple sectors, multiple problems and challenges, uh, you know, burgeoning local government debts, plunging direct foreign investments, not to mention youth and employment, com- uh, consumer confidence numbers so bad, as you know, the government has stopped releasing these data. So that's certainly not a sign of confidence. So I think the problem right now is, uh, you know, the confidence is not back from consumers, from uh, businesses after three years of brutal lockdowns and all these crackdowns uh, on the private sector. Julia? Mm. Stephen Jang,
1: thank you so much for that report there. Now, in the coming hours, Spain's Football Federation is set to hold a, quote, extraordinary and urgent meeting. It comes after FIFA suspended Federation President Luis Rubiales for 90 days after he kissed star player Jenny Hermoso at the Women's World Cup medal ceremony. He has so far refused to resign and Spain's Football Federation has thus far been defiantly defending him. World Sports' Amanda Davis joins us now. Amanda, you and I talked in the aftermath of what was an incredible victory for these women and that's what we should be talking about and unfortunately we're now talking about this. What are we expecting from this press conference?
3: Yeah, I think you're, you're right, Julia. I, there were, though, for so many people, there was an asterisk against Spain's victory because of the repeated complaints that had been raised by players and other people within the federation over a number of years that had been brushed under the carpet. And, and players and the management structures felt hadn't been taken seriously uh, in the build-up to this World Cup over a number of years. But what has left so many people kind of sick to the stomach, really, over the last eight days is how this moment has been dealt with and that blatant defiance from the president, Luis Rubiales, the threat of legal action against Jenny Hermoso. And to put her into context as a player, not that it should make any difference, she is Spain's record all-time goal scorer for her country. She was so integral to this moment. She is a player with influence and power. And up to this point, the Spanish Federation, the RFEF, have stood by their man. They have backed Luis Rubiales until now calling this meeting. Rubiales has been suspended, as you mentioned, by World Football's governing body for 90 days as things stand. And the interim president of the RF. EF, Pedro Rocha, has called this meeting an urgent emergency meeting of the regional bodies. They've said to evaluate the situation in which the Federation finds itself, to look at the decisions or actions to be taken. For most people, those actions and decisions should have been taken uh, eight days ago, shouldn't they? You know, there are not many decisions or actions to still be taken that, you know, it, it's pretty obvious. But they are doing something. We don't know whether a decision, an announcement will be made today. We don't know what that will be. But the people who we haven't yet heard from, Julia, who should be standing up and taking charge of this, a European football's governing body, UEFA. Spain comes under their remit. Rubiales is a vice president of their executive committee. He was only Reinstated, re-elected in April this year. Their silence up to this point has been deafening. People ask why. You have to say it's football politics and it shows you just how far we have to go in terms of these kind of issues.
1: Yeah, we'll see what happens at the press conference today and then if they say something in, in light of that. Um, can I ask you specifically about reports tied to Rubiales's mother? I, I've seen a suggestion that she's in a local church, that she's conducting a hunger strike. Can you tell us any more about that? Yeah, I mean,
3: these are stories only just coming into us. Um, And what we know is it's being reported that Rubiale's mother, uh, Angelis Bejar, has locked herself in a church in the Spanish city of Montreal, which is near Granada. And she has said, quotes, she will remain there infinitely, day and night, until justice was served. So she's gone, we understand, on a hunger strike um, because of the treatment she sees uh, her son has received. She has uh, used the words, uh, she is protesting against the inhumane, bloodthirsty hunt of her son. And I think it speaks really to the emotion and the divisions that have been caused, Julia, by what has played out over the last few days. You know, there are, on the one hand, players, both men's and women's in Spain and around the world, who very much backed Jenny Hermoso and the Spanish players and spoken out against Rubiales. But there are still a number of people who are backing their man. And this is a conversation which speaks to a bigger picture doesn't it, in terms of not only the treatments of women in football, but in society as a whole.
1: Yeah, and the debate needs to be had as well. We'll see what comes of it. Amanda, thank you for that. To Ukraine now, and at least two people have been killed, five injured in a Russian missile strike in the eastern Poltava region. That's according to the Ukrainian President's Office, which says the explosion caused a fire in an oil mill. It comes as Russia says it destroyed two drones overnight over a territory bordering Ukraine. And in other news, Ukraine's president says it may be possible to hold elections next year as scheduled, but says Ukraine would need more financial support. Let's get the very latest from our team on the ground in Ukraine. Melissa Bell joins us now from Zaporizhia. Melissa, I mean, we could talk about any of these elements, but it was interesting to hear the Ukrainian president talk about the prospect of holding elections next year, despite the fact that obviously at this moment that the country's under uh, sort of martial law conditions, which will obviously make it very difficult, they're clearly going to need help if they do press ahead with this.
4: That was exactly his point to Ukrainian media, uh, Julia, that they won't be able to do this alone. Essentially, what's been happening since the Russian invasion of last year is every 90 days, martial law has to be reinstated. That is the way the law works here in Ukraine. Under martial law, which is reinstated for 90 days, of course, uh, no elections, no political activity can take place. At all. And so until now, the position had been that it seemed very difficult to see how Ukraine was going to be able to hold the parliamentary elections that are due for this autumn or indeed the presidential elections that are due for next year. What President Zelensky has been saying is that whilst there are difficulties, obviously, not just because of the martial law, but because uh, 20 percent of the country is currently in Russian hands because so many of its young men and women are currently serving on the front lines or actually living abroad because they have fled the war. All of these logistical difficulties will have to be looked into, will have to be addressed. Uh, but what President Zelensky said was that he would not want to seem to be the one holding democracy back and that he is wholeheartedly behind the idea of the holding of these elections if the financial help can be given. His point is that he doesn't want valuable resources to be taken away from the front line and the counteroffensive that's now going on to try and reclaim some of that territory from Russia. Uh, But uh, with the financial help uh, from uh, uh, other countries, from allies, he said, uh, it might be possible to consider holding these elections, Julia.
1: Yes, and logistical support as well, to your point. A lot of the people in the country are not even in Ukraine at this moment, too. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. Now, in an exclusive interview, Moldova's president has told CNN that more support needs to be provided to Ukraine. Well, there could be serious consequences, speaking to our chief international anchor, Christian Armanpour. The, uh, she said that if Kiev does not get the international help it needs, Russia will not hold back on its ambitions.
5: Do you believe that the West is doing enough? Do you think it really gets it? I mean, do you think it's yet done enough for Ukraine? And is it doing enough for you?
6: We are grateful to all the countries and to all the international organizations which support Ukraine. We believe that Ukraine needs to get more support. Uh, Ukraine is fighting the right cause. Uh, Ukraine is fighting for its independence, but also for democracy. And everybody should understand that. Uh, if Ukraine is not helped, then Russia will not stop in Ukraine or Moldova. So this is also about the security, first of all, the security of the continent, uh, and also about the international rules-based system.
1: The Moldovan President Maya Sandu there. And you can catch that full exclusive interview on Amanpour right here on CNN. Christian anchors from the Ukrainian port city of Odessa and we'll have special coverage from Ukraine all week. Tune in at 1pm if you're watching here in New York or 6pm in London. Now two pivotal court hearings in the cases against Donald Trump are taking place today. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is set to lay out key evidence in the racketeering case against the former president and his alleged co-conspirators. And in Washington, a federal judge is holding a hearing on when Trump's trial will take place on special counsel Jack Smith's election subversion charges. And coming up here on First Move, reset or economic regret? The U.S. Commerce Secretary calling her talks with Beijing officials today open and pragmatic, encouraging news for both countries who need a robust trading partnership now more than ever. Expert analysis
0: next.
1: Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. and China today announcing a new working group on commercial issues, the latest effort between the two nations to help improve business ties. The announcement coming on the first day of talks between U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and Chinese officials in Beijing. Washington taking major action in recent months to cut exports of key technologies to China and restrict inward U.S. investment. But the Biden administration also remains hopeful that the two nations can boost trade beyond the sphere of national security concerns. Beijing also in need of ways to boost growth as business and consumer confidence sags, unemployment rises and deflationary trends accelerate amid a deepening property sector crisis. The big question is Beijing able to boost growth in the short term without compromising longer term economic and social stability. Iswag Prasad joins us now. He's senior fellow at Brookings Institution and professor of trade policy at Cornell University. Professor Prasad, Iswag, fantastic to have you on the show. There's clearly economic opportunity for both sides to boost trade ties beyond the knottier issues of the technology concerns and, and national security issues. Is that possible in your mind?
7: I think it is certainly possible. There was a time not too long ago when the economic and trading relationship between the two countries was seen as a positive sum game where the two sides could both mutually benefit. That has um, not been the case for the last few years when the bilateral trade tensions between the two sides has been ramping up. To some extent, because the US feels that China is not playing by the rules, In addition, there is now what is almost an existential battle for um, supremacy in terms of the uh, industries of the future, especially the higher tech, greener um, uh, energy sort of technologies where both countries want to establish dominance. So right now we seem to have the national security imperative, which uh, Secretary Raimondo has been talking about and other US officials have been as well, taking precedence over these economic issues. So that's behind what uh, uh, Washington has been doing in terms of restricting technology transfers, investments in China, all of which are seen as conduits for China to get access to technology that might allow it to compete in a way with the U.S. that the U.S. cannot um, uh, stay in front of these technologies. But I think there is a way that both countries could, in fact, benefit from sharing these technologies so long as there is a clear set of rules that both countries play by. And that's what they seem to be talking about now.
1: Yeah, there can be certainly a greater degree of pragmatism as well with regards to the technology sales from the United States. I mean, some of these chips will be superfluous and outdated in a couple of years. Restricting them now and angering China seems like the the wrong answer. But um, hey, that's my view. You were recently in China and you were certainly getting a sense of confidence, both of consumers, I think, and ordinary citizens, perhaps even more importantly at this moment, the private sector and companies businesses operating there and that was something that you wrote an op-ed about and it caught my attention. There's a real disconnect between what officials see as confidence in the business sector and what the private sector itself is willing to admit.
7: That is a big issue that confronts China right now as it tries to revive growth. Towards the end of 2022 last year um, there was a tech um, crackdown where many high-flying tech companies were um, you know, cut down to size In addition, there was a crackdown on other parts of the private sector, including uh, the medical sector, the education sector, and so on. Coming on top of a variety of short-term concerns, such as the property market unraveling, youth unemployment rising, um, and um, deflation beginning to set in, um, there is a real concern right now that the private sector may not be um, confident enough either for businesses to invest or for households to go out and consume. So right now, I think what is really crucial for the Chinese government is to be able to indicate that in fact, private enterprise is something that it uh, views as playing a very important role in the economy. Because the reality is that for all that China wants to accomplish, you know, moving up the value chain, which essentially means moving up to higher technology industries, which will mean more domestic innovation as well, they need the private sector. The private sector, especially small and medium enterprises have been crucial in terms of employment growth. So unless they fix that and send a clear signal and also some actions to indicate that the private sector is seen as playing a very important role in the economy, I think private investment will continue to fall. Household consumption will not pick up. And that's going to make even the short term recovery very difficult to engineer.
1: I mean, their common prosperity efforts in 2001 involved sort of public takedowns of Uh, Big companies and tech leaders, they almost became some of these entrepreneurs seen as public enemy number one. Have you seen steps to try and address that? Because saying that you're supportive of the private sector and actually being supportive of the private sector and those efforts are are two very different things. What can they do to restore that confidence?
7: Yes, Julia, that distinction is indeed absolutely crucial right now. In fact, on my recent trip, that was um, uh, almost an element of cognitive dissonance between officials in Beijing who seem to think that they have done enough to reassure the private sector that um, it is very much in their favor and that um, um, Beijing's central government does see private enterprises playing a very important role in the economy. But many of the entrepreneurs I spoke to um, conveyed a very different message that they thought that something fundamental had shifted, that now that President Xi Jinping has ascended to a third term and indicated through a variety of words and actions that he views the state enterprise sector as playing a more important role in the economy, they, that is the private enterprises felt that they were falling out of favor. So it's going to be a hard slog for Beijing to send not just the right messages, but also to show that it is willing to tolerate, um, if not encourage private enterprises to innovate, which in some cases could mean growing big and powerful as well, um, and also making sure that small and medium enterprises that I referred to earlier are getting the financial resources they need in order to um, play an important part in terms of both output and employment growth
1: yeah i want to talk about the chinese um, consumer as well and and raising a degree of confidence there and, and- For me this is intrinsically tied actually to what we're seeing in the property market as well because as you see sort of housing concerns and property prices fall, that's a significant proportion of of household wealth that we're talking about too. How concerned are you by what we're seeing in the property sector? And obviously we had the Evergrande results overnight as well and I think everybody saw the share price reaction. Um, There's still deep concerns about what this means for the economy.
7: The property sector is really important to the Chinese economy overall. By some estimates, it accounts for about 25% or so of uh, um, national output, either directly or indirectly. It's been a very important driver of growth, and it accounts for, by some estimates, nearly one-third of household wealth. So when the property sector is not doing well, the economy does not do well, and households feel that their wealth is declining, and that affects their um, consumption levels. Now, the real challenge for Beijing is to make sure that it manages the property sector in a more sensible fashion. The reality is that some of the measures the government took to rein in the property sector in 2021 were perhaps desirable because there was a lot of speculative activity in that sector. But what some property developers told me was that those steps were taken in a very abrupt fashion without much notice, so the property sector did not have time to adjust. But more broadly, the economy is going to have to adjust um, to a period where the property sector simply cannot be such an important driver of growth anymore. Things are stabilizing right now, but the problem is that, as you mentioned, there are some property developers that have, that have taken on huge amounts of debt, there are some banks that are exposed to those developers, so we're going to see some volatility in property markets. But Beijing is trying to take back some of the restrictions on the property sector to give it something of a boost. But again, unless they take broader measures to instill confidence that policies are going in the right direction, I don't think it's going to have much of an effect in terms of boosting household consumption.
1: Do you think we see worse growth than we're seeing, even if it's not reported that way? And I guess the same for for unemployment?
7: There are many indications that the economy is on pretty rough territory and the Chinese government has responded essentially by making it harder to get access to data. Youth unemployment has been rising in the official data and they've now basically scrubbed uh, those data. I don't think that uh, um, denying people, denying analysts the information they need to analyze where the economy is going is the right way to uh, build confidence. But you know there is another perspective worth keeping in mind. This is now an 18.5 trillion dollar economy. It's the second largest in the world. Uh, it's about two thirds the size of the U.S. economy. So the eight um, to 10 percent growth rates of the past are really going to be difficult to sustain. The big issue is whether China can get good, high-quality growth in the next few years, at least in the range of four to five percent um, in inflation-adjusted terms. That would be pretty good for an economy of this size. But even that is going to be a challenge if you have household consumption staying weak, private investment falling. And that's going to make all the economic objectives of the Xi Jinping government very difficult to achieve.
1: Yes, some tough policy choices still required. Um, Iswa Prasad, sir, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Senior Fellow at Brookings Institution and Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University. Thanks once again. Welcome back to First Move. US stock markets are open and I have to say it's uh, not a very August like August so far because things are actually happening. The S&P 500, unfortunately, down some 4% so far for the month, but a higher open across the board today with tech As you can see in the lead, encouraging news for the tech bulls after Nvidia's strong profit report last week failed to boost Wall Street overall. If stocks close higher this session, though, it will mark the first back-to-back wins for the S&P this month. A reflection of the ongoing economic challenges facing investors with more interest rate uncertainty ahead. And, of course, we also have a key U.S. jobs report out on Friday this week. Now, as we've discussed already on the show, as the war in Ukraine grinds on, Russia is ramping up its military spending. A new report reveals Moscow has doubled its defence spending for this year so far. Claire Sebastian has the details.
5: In Russia today, military production is sacred. Russia's main tank factory showing off its latest shipment and a choreographed glimpse into the strain of wartime production. Output here has more than tripled over the last year, according to Russia's Prime Minister.
8: What we have seen is that uh, military spending um, has been much higher uh, than was actually planned for this year. And it looks like that uh, the spending that was planned for this year is already exhausted now that we are halfway through the year.
5: The Russian budget had earmarked roughly 50 billion dollars for defense. A budget document seen this month by Reuters suggests Russia has now more than doubled that estimate. Experts say it could be even higher.
0: It looks as though, as a, expressed
9: as a percentage of GDP, it could be anywhere between 8 and 10 percent of GDP. So if we think as a proportion of GDP, it could be have almost tripled.
5: Are you surprised in any way by this?
0: No, is the honest answer.
5: President Putin was very clear there are, he said last December, no limits to military funding. And yet, as Russia's annual weapons exhibition got underway this month, the Teflon had started to come off its wartime economy. Military spending helping fuel a resurgence in inflation and a plummeting ruble, prompting an emergency rate rise from the central bank and putting even the most loyal Russians on
3: edge.
5: Sanctions and lower prices also sent Russia's vital oil and gas revenues plummeting in the first half of this year but prices have been recovering over the summer.
8: Russia is still earning a huge amount of dollars and yuan and euros by exporting energy and other resources. And it is going to earn these dollars also in the future because, you know, as we have learned, we cannot easily push Russia out of the oil market.
5: There is, though, another challenge facing Russia's weapons industry. Do you like playing basketball, asks this recruitment video for the Kazan helicopter plant. The CEO of its parent company recently told Putin they need to fill 23,000 jobs this year. Wages already up 17%.
9: This is a very tight labor force for a number of demographic reasons, but also to do with since the war a lot of people have left the country. Um, Some people have been mobilized.
5: Sanctions have also disrupted supplies of high-tech components for weapons, experts say raising costs even further. And yet the Kremlin has found a way to justify this, a war with the West.
4: The Western
0: elite make no secret of their goal, which is, I quote, Russia's strategic defeat.
9: So the Russian population are being presented with that view, so they're being prepped, they're being prepared and shaped to expect that they're maybe going to have to spend more money to take more of a hit on living standards, to fight against such a powerful adversary.
5: A fight now happening on the front lines and in the factories. Sebastian, CNN, London. And an incident at a
1: school in India has been met with shock and outrage after a viral video was released showing a teacher telling students to smack a seven-year-old classmate who is Muslim. CNN's Vedika Sood has more.
6: Police in India's northern state of Uttar Pradesh are investigating a deeply disturbing video that shows a teacher asking at least three students to slap a fellow classmate who is Muslim. The incident, which took place on Thursday, according to CNN affiliate CNN News 18, has gone viral on social media, sparking widespread outrage and condemnation. In the 39-second video, which CNN has viewed, shows classmates take turns to slap the boy on the face, forehead and his waist. The teacher, who can be seen in the frame, asked for the students to slap the boy harder for allegedly forgetting his time stable. The boy can be seen crying through the video. According to a statement released by the police, the teacher made some objectionable comments in class. She said, quote, mothers of Mohammedan students don't pay attention to their child's studies, which impacts their performance. On Friday, the police issued a statement saying that a case has been opened against the teacher and that legal action will be taken. However, the teacher, Sripti Thiagi, speaking to CNN News 18 on Friday, said the video that has been circulated online was edited. She claims to have been under pressure from the students' parents to be strict with him. She said she's disabled and unable to get up. She instructed the other students to discipline him. Tyagi has issued an apology. Speaking to CNN, the father of the student denied the teacher's claims and said his son has been moved to another school but feels restless and scared. Opposition leader Rahul Gandhi has blamed the Modi government for inciting religious violence in the country. In a post on ex-formerly known as Twitter, Gandhi said, quote, sowing the poison of discrimination in the minds of innocent children, turning a holy place like school into a marketplace of hatred there is nothing worse than this that a teacher can do for the country. This is the same kerosene spread by the BJP which has set every corner of India on fire. The state of Uttar Pradesh is governed by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist party, Janata Party. Its controversial Chief Minister Yogi Adityanath has often been criticized for his anti-Muslim rhetoric. CNN has reached out to Uttar Pradesh police officials. For more details. Vedika Suth, CNN, New Delhi. And an
1: update to that too the school has now been ordered to close by district officials. Still to come here on First Move. Severe weather, putting in the squeeze on a critical international shipping artery. We'll discuss the drought and the impact on the Panama Canal next.
5: The assignment with me, Adi Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings.
1: Back to First Move, the Panama Canal, one of the world's most vital shipping lanes, is facing an unprecedented drought. It's caused officials to impose limits on the traffic passing through, and that's caused significant backlogs. Just to give you a sense, 40% of the world's cargo ship traffic passes through the Panama Canal every year. And even though the direct impact to manufacturers, retailers and consumers appears to be minimal, at least at this stage the potential for a broader disruption is growing and joining us now is peter sand chief analyst at freight market analytics firm zanetta peter good to have you on the show once again just describe the situation as you see it in the panama canal today
9: thanks for having me back one of the uh, maritime choke points that uh, that keeps getting into uh, to the face of the public uh, is now doing it again. The Panama Canal is uh, operating at full capacity right now, or should I say, under the restrictions that has been set out for several months now, and are.
1: Oh, we seem to have lost Peter there. We'll try and uh, reestablish that connection, but in the interim, we will uh, take a break here and hopefully uh, bring him back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Just before the break, we were talking about drought in the Panama Canal and the potential impact on future shipping activities. Peter Sand, chief analyst at freight market analytics firm Zanetta, was talking to us and we lost connection. Peter, can I just check that you can hear me?
9: I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, fantastic.
1: Fantastic. So I asked you what the conditions were like. And and you were mentioning, I think, before we lost you that um, since late May, there have been restrictions imposed and a number of vessels have been forced to reduce the amount that they're carrying so that they don't sit too low in the water. Can you just give us a sense of the restrictions that are now in place and, and what impact that's having?
9: Yeah, in essence, uh, the restrictions that have been in place now for well since uh, early month, uh, I think February actually, it started to uh, to come down. Uh, Since end May, it's been a reduction of two meters, where the uh, the ships can basically not sit as low in the water as they normally do when they transit the the canal fully laden. So what this translates into is that uh, they need to uh, to uh, to transit uh, the Panama Canal with fewer containers on board than they would otherwise do a reduction of 10 15 percent and what this does for uh, for shippers uh, with cargo going through the canal is of course that it puts pressure on freight rates so uh so Seneta freight rates for uh, a key route uh, from far east into u.s gulf coast that all goes through the panama canal is up by a thousand dollars since end june and more essentially also the long-term contracts have just inched up also in the beginning of of August by $250. So it's crunch time. And this is definitely a wake-up call for those uh, shippers with cargo that needs to go through the canal in the coming, well, month and quarters.
1: Okay, so there's a lot of information in there. So what we're talking about is containers that can only carry... Um, 10 to 15% less than they were. So that raises the amount of container ships that are required because that has to be redistributed. Obviously, people are also looking, I'm assuming, uh, other options too. But if prices are elevated, then there's going to be a reluctance to sign contracts, longer term contracts, at least in case those prices adjust. Just talk to me about the freight rates that you mentioned. Put that into perspective of the kind of levels for freight rates that we saw during the pandemic at the worst points of of, of the challenges that we saw in global shipping. How, how do the prices compare to what we're seeing today? Just even in percentage terms, that might make it easier.
9: Yeah, well, in, in, in many ways, obviously, uh, especially American shippers and importers are spooked by, uh, by this situation as it brings back nasty memories of all the obstacles that they uh, experienced uh, in terms of uh, disruptions to to their supply chains during uh, the COVID years. Uh, But what we see in terms of say real freight rates on the spot market right now, we have about $3,500 for a a standard 40 foot container. And it's approximately one third of what you saw during the COVID years. So it's significantly down you might say, but but the trend is sharply up as alluded to before 50% from end June. So, so the direction is clear, we're going up, there is a squeeze on capacity, and there's only someone to pay for that, that is the shippers. So it's a risk to manage and you need the right tools to do just that.
1: Yeah, it's good to have the comparison today, but to your point, who knows where it's going as um, these concerns rise. I saw the Canal Authority said that these restrictions could be in place for another 10 months, and I know I was looking at it over the weekend that the water level in one of the two lakeways that supplies water to the canal is at a seven-year low, so even when the raining season starts, that it's not enough of a compensation. How high might these rates get, and what's going to be the knock-on impact, Peter, perhaps to deliveries? As as we head towards the holiday season? I mean, we're close enough now, perhaps, for for that to be a worry for inventories.
9: I think if I may use a sport term, it, uh, it's a game of two halves. We, uh, we got uh, this second half of the year where we're just about to head into the traditional peak season where a lot of uh, American importers bring in their Christmas goods. So there's definitely a squeeze on rates right now, spot as well as long term. And they may go, well... It's anybody's guess, right? But uh, but we've seen an additional $1,000 being put on them right now. We could definitely see another 1000 uh, uh, in uh, in a few weeks or months. And then coming back to the second half of the game, because the problem is really that, uh, that the water reservoirs are not being filled during the wet season of, of this year. And they basically arrive then uh, with uh, too little water to uh, uh, basically... Uh, for the dry season in the uh, first half of 2024. So uh, so that's why the Pan-American authorities uh, announced 10 months of these restrictions. So obviously, all shippers are looking towards alternatives as they fear rates may go even higher, as alluded to also the long-term contract rates are now also itching up for those that, that seek to make use of that service. But in the end, there's only uh, 10 big container ships that can transit the canal every single day for the next 10 months. So if anything in terms of demand will go up from here, alternatives will be deployed, whether that's a Suez Canal transit or whether it's uh, well, air cargo, if you're really in a hurry and a need.
1: Yeah, all the slack's been taken out. Peter, great to get your insights. Thank you. We'll keep in touch and you can uh, track progress with us. Peter Sand, chief analyst there at Anetta. Great to have you on, sir, once again. Now, the United Nations General Antonio Gutierrez says he's concerned amid reports of voter intimidation and suspicious arrests in Zimbabwe's recent elections. Opposition and civil society groups say the vote was marred by voter intimidation, threats of violence, harassment and coercion. On Saturday, the Electoral Commission announced the incumbent, Emerson Mnangagwa won with nearly 53% of the votes cast. David McKenzie joins us now live from Johannesburg. David, but how important are these concerns from international observers saying they're concerned about voter delays, particularly in the capital city and the second city where the strongholds are of, of the opposition there? Um, it has economic consequences too, surely, amid debt negotiations for the country Where does this leave us?
8: We still don't know where it leaves us, Julia, but it doesn't seem to be that it leaves necessarily Zimbabwe in its best position. Uh, With all the elections, frankly, you have to look at the before, during, and after the voting. The before of the, the story has been roundly criticized by outside observers as being marred by violence and intimidation. The during, when people actually voted in Zimbabwe, as you say, was beset with significant delays. The opposition saying that the voters' role wasn't up to date on the eve of the voting. and They didn't receive, as they are due to receive, uh, the information that allows them to check their tabulations with the official tabulations. That voting was stretched onto uh, a second day. And relatively quickly, we got the results uh, which said that the incumbent, Emerson Mnangagwa had won another term. Uh, the Zimbabwean president saying that it was peaceful, transparent, and in broad daylight. And I'm paraphrasing here. The after of the vote is where we are now. And at this stage, observer missions, the limited uh, observers who were there, uh, say that there were significant problems. The opposition is saying that they have different Tabulations from several stations and constituencies. They are asking for clarity from the Zimbabwean Electoral Commission. Where it happens now, well, here's the leader of the opposition, Nelson Chamisa. It is clear that we are rejecting the election as a sham, the result. The process itself, we disregard it, and it's in line with what the SADC observers have said. We reject this sham result and flawed process based on the disputed figures. I think a critical thing we have to note here is that in his victory speech, as it were, or his comments afterwards, the president uh, gave an olive branch, reached out to the opposition party saying he's willing to work with them. I think this isn't necessarily a magnanimous move. I think this is an assessment of the reality of the situation. You mentioned the debt issues of Zimbabwe. That's one issue. Zimbabwe is still under multiple different sanctions when it comes to political individuals. And the government is hamstrung because of the way that the country and its resources are managed in the eyes of the world. I don't think anyone will change the way they deal with Zimbabwe unless there's a significant uh, power sharing or at least detente between the, the leadership and the opposition. But we're not there yet. It's too early to speak of that because at this point, I'm sure the opposition will be taking this to court and the latest I hear from sources there is we could expect more information on the perceived irregularities coming out tomorrow. Julia?
1: Yeah, we we'll wait for more. David McKenzie in Johannesburg, sir. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night.